If I were given the choice of doing evil to someone or betraying my conscience or else facing punishment, which would I choose? And it was very important to me that I be prepared to answer that question well. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, we're going to talk about a topic today that is uncomfortable for many, uh, in, in particular, those of us who have experienced it. Not so long ago, if I would have used the words cancel culture, people would have sort of skewed up their, their eyes and wondered, well, what on earth are you talking about, Leighton? Well, today we all know what cancel culture is. It's rampant. It's become part of our, our daily lives. For some of us, it's become life-changing, those of us who have experienced it. Well, our guest today is uh, a woman named Kaylin Ford, and she has not only experienced this, but she's she's created a, a very fascinating, very illuminating, and I think important film about this called When the Mob Came. And uh, we're going to show a clip in a minute, but I just want to set this up uh, with a description that, that Kaylin has on her website. Uh, and, and it reads as follows. She, she writes, is cancel culture a real thing? Are public shaming and deplatforming campaigns justified as a way of advancing social justice and holding the powerful to account? Or are they evidence of a creeping proto- totalitarianism. My vote would be the latter. What happens when these tools are weaponized for personal or political advantage? And how does a person rebuild after public cancellation? So let's, uh, let's watch a, a short clip from the film and then we're going to introduce, introduce our guest. What was shared was her private messages. She was engaged in a Facebook chat with somebody. The accusation was that she had said something in a private conversation that had echoed the words of white supremacists. Kaylin Ford says those Facebook messages were taken out of context. The statement did not have one word of contrition, apology, or backing down from those statements. The NDP has now started running attack ads framing the United Conservative Party as intolerant. I was utterly shocked to uh, hear of the comments um, that uh, that candidate, who was of course a star candidate for the UCP, uh, made. Well, if you didn't know who Kaylin Ford was before today, hopefully that has really whetted your appetite. If you already know who she is, then hopefully this conversation is going to help you learn more about her and why she made this film and why it's so important. So Kaylin is a documentary filmmaker and writer, researcher, charter school founder, and a former political candidate. We're going to talk about that a lot today. She's interested in the problem of political and philosophical evil. And most of her work is animated by a desire to help people recover their roots in reality and their orientation toward the divine. I really like that description. She's from Calgary. She's born in Calgary. She's very well educated. She earned a bachelor's degree in honors in Chinese history at the University of Calgary. She also obtained a master's degree in international affairs from George Washington University. She worked on and off as a senior policy advisor for Canada's foreign ministry for about 10 years. Between the birth of her two children, she's a busy lady. Uh, she earned another master's in international human rights law at the University of Oxford. 
and uh, so welcome to the show, uh, Kaylin. It's great to have you on Grey Matter today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion, especially in talking about your film. Um, before we do that, as we always do, we're going to frame our discussion with some aphorisms. My research on it was very clear that you have an interest in uh, uh, Oriental philosophy, ancient philosophy. So the first of our quotations is from Confucius. I know I'm cheating. That's an easy one. Uh, but I know this is a big part of the uh, the school program you developed. And uh, he wrote many things. One of them that uh, hopefully ties in here uh, reads, education breeds confidence. Confidence breeds hope and hope breeds peace. Second one is from uh, Lao Tzu, who wrote, if you want to awaken all of humanity, then awaken all of yourself. If you want to eliminate the suffering in the world, then eliminate all that is negative in yourself. Truly, the greatest gift you have to give is that of your own self-transformation. And finally, from Sun Tzu, uh, author of the famous work, The Art of War, uh, he wrote, the peak efficiency of knowledge and strategy is to make conflict unnecessary, perhaps by uh, creating a really interesting documentary film. So, <laughs> Caitlin, the, the film is called When the Mob Came. Uh, and uh, be But before we dive into that, um, I'd really like to hear from you about how this all unfolded. Can you give us sort of a, a, a thumbnail sketch for people? How did you become the victim of, uh, of, of cancel culture? Um, I, I suppose that it was fated in a way. Um, so I was a political candidate running in the 2019 provincial election in Alberta and um, was, I always interpreted this as a bit of a pejorative, but was frequently described as a star candidate. Um, I just imagine people saying I heard that. that. Ra Rachel, that. Said, Rachel said that about you. How um, flattering, yeah. <laughs> I was a, a quite a high-profile candidate and um, was running in a conventionally left-wing seat against the NDP's then-justice minister, but I was polling very, very well and was, um, according at least to our, our internal polling, I was on track to beat her. And then a month before the election, um, an NDP affiliated entity called the uh, Broadbent Institute or Press Progress ran an article claiming that in a private conversation years before I had, according to them, echoed uh, white supremacist or white nationalist rhetoric and basically expressed sympathy for white supremacist terrorism. This article was published three days after the Christchurch Mosque massacre when um, 50 people were killed while at prayer in New Zealand. Um, and within hours it was getting picked up and circulating on twitter among you know journalists across the country uh my party faced pressure to um get rid of me uh, as the election call was imminent and so it took all of four hours before i was no longer a candidate um and uh, and that was just the beginning uh, mm -hmm. my resignation was taking taken as um admission of culpability somehow and uh, rather than having the story go away, it caused people to lean into it and see it as sort of proof that the United Conservative Party really is sort of full of closeted white supremacists or something. So it remained in the national news for a month. Um, every attempt that I made to try to set the record straight uh, was shut down. Um, the, the one radio interview that I did at the time, the radio host then faced sort of a uh, attempted cancellation. Um, there was, you know, boycotts against her petitions. Uh, the mayor of Calgary was apparently on board and um, sort of supporting this effort to either get her offline or force her to apologize or get people to boycott her show. So 
I had no opportunity to speak in my own defense. Um, and, uh, and of course, the accusations against me were false. Uh, so it was based on a single anonymous accuser uh, who claimed that I'd said something in a private conversation that was never publicly disclosed. Well, Kaylin, you don't look or sound much like a white supremacist. I, I see you're not wearing a, a white hood today. Uh, you sound like a, you know, like a lady uh, professor at, at Mount Royal College or something. Uh, so where did people get the idea that, that you were a white supremacist? Um, well, I think they got the idea because it was advantageous to the NDP and to their acolytes and supporters to frame that story. And they published it at a time that was optimal. Um, they published it deliberately on the eve of an election call when it would have the maximum effect and when there would be no time or opportunity for me to respond effectively. Um, so in my view, this was this was uh, just a sort of deliberately crafted narrative on the part of my political opponents. Um, and the effect of this, of course, well, we can get into that, but uh, it had very far reaching effects on my life, certainly, and, and on many other people's lives. But um, I, I think there's also an element of confirmation bias there, right? If you're on the left and particularly count yourself among the more kind of activist left, there is a tendency to vastly overrate uh, or to overestimate the kind of extreme beliefs of your opponents. And people on the right do this as well, but not as significantly as those on the left. So um, people on the right actually tend to have a pretty good idea of what their political opponents believe, whereas it's not true in the other direction. So um, it's very common for uh, those on the progressive left to think that their opponents really are sort of hateful, bigoted, um, and confirmation of your prejudices feels good. Um, it makes you feel that you're justified in hating other people when you see those prejudices confirmed. So it flatters us in a way when people say, uh, your opponents really are evil, I've unmasked them, doesn't this feel great? Um, so I think that that's a large part of it is one, it, this was just a, a deliberately very carefully crafted narrative that was crafted with the intent of causing harm uh, to me and to my political candidacy and to my reputation. And um, secondly, that it aligned with a lot of people's priors. And, uh, and I, so I think for that reason, the story immediately picked up steam uh, in newsrooms and elsewhere. Yeah. I, you know, I, don't, I, I want to talk about your, your film and why you made it and, and the statement that it makes. But before we go there, I, as someone who's been through cancel culture myself, I don't want to gloss over the human impact that this had upon you. So, so take us back to when the story broke. You're sailing along. As you say, you're doing really well. You're, you're a favored candidate. Um, and let's face it, you, you've worked very hard. You've had a very successful life. You've accomplished more things at a young age than, than most people do. In a lifetime, and suddenly you're hit like a train by this cancel culture attack comes out of nowhere. Uh, how are you coping at that time? You know, emotionally, psychologically, and how did this impact your 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 family, your relationships with uh, with your with with the, your important people, with your with your group and your children? How how was that? How did you sort of weather that storm? So that I'm going to answer that question in two ways. First, I would say that this was not entirely out of the blue in the sense, and I had alluded earlier to the, the idea that it felt fated to me. And that's because I had, to this point, spent 
probably about 15 years, ever since I was 16 years old, um, working to oppose totalitarian communism and uh, working with asylum seekers and refugees who had fled from those kinds of systems. Um, and that's how I became interested in the study of contemporary Chinese history, for example, and 20th century totalitarian history more broadly. Um, and where my fascination with the, this kind of problem of this type of tyranny. And, and, and you'd even lived in China, right, Kaylin? Oh, no, I was blacklisted very young. So, oh, okay. So I was, I've actually never been able to go to China. I, I was, oh, uh, I think that I was when I was blacklisted, if not 17. Oh. So, um, which is, it's, it is a pity because it's a country that I, I have great admiration and respect for. Um, I just happen to think that the party that rules it is is evil and tyrannical. Um, <laughs> On that we but, can agree. But I think that the, the experience of um, working with exiles and hearing their stories, uh, many of these people are, are those who had been imprisoned or in labor camps for their beliefs, for refusing to compromise their principles. And I think that exposure always caused me to ask myself, well, how were I, were I encountered with a similar situation? How would I handle it? Um, if I were given the choice of doing evil to someone or betraying my conscience or else facing punishment, which would I choose? And it was very important to me that I be prepared to answer that question well. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of my philosophical uh, and literary influences are also people or characters sometimes who have faced exile or wrongful persecution or imprisonment. Um, and um, so I think that I had mentally prepared in a way for this, especially since one of part of the impetus for me to go into politics was witnessing these kinds of trends percolating in our own society. So the growing intolerance toward different ideas, um, you know, trying to sort of in some cases, suffocate truth a little bit in favor of a preferred um, uh, set of ideological commitments. And uh, I saw a number of the contemporary writers and philosophers that I liked experiencing something sort of like this. And I thought, well, if there's one area where in politics, you might have a little bit of influence to stem the tide a bit, it would probably be in education. If you can educate people to discern truth clearly, to reason, um, and to exercise, uh, well, yeah, to, to exercise clear reasoning so that they're not easily led um, and and um, and deceived. Well, maybe you can you can do something to arrest these trends. So, having said all of that, this was not totally out of the blue because I think at various levels psychologically, I'd always prepared myself for an event like this. And mm -hmm. you'll see in the film, and this is where the title of the film comes from. All throughout my campaign, I had a little folder on my desktop containing a series of aphorisms and dialogues and poems, um, trying to remind myself what kind of person I would like to be if I why, were in Why would anyone do that, Kaylin? Why would anybody have aphorisms? <laughs> <laughs> um, but having said all that, even though I think I tried to prepare myself, um, this was a form that I did not expect it to take. I expected right. at least the dignity of choosing which hill to die on um, and right. rather than just being sort of falsely accused. Yeah. Um, and um, and it was far worse than I thought. And it was oh. far more protracted than I thought. Yeah, um, it really is evil, wasn't it? I mean, and yet you've you've done, uh, when the mob came is, uh, and I want to talk about that, but, uh, you know, I, I, it really is uh, so important for, this story to be told and and i think it's to your credit that um you took a very difficult situation and you've made it sort of cathartic not only for yourself but
But as you say, you've, you've, you've walked out and you've manifested your, your goal of educating the public. But this was not your first, uh, this is not your first foray into filmmaking. You made two others. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about, before we get into uh, when the mob came, about how you got into filmmaking? Um, sure. Well, it was uh, actually when I was on maternity leave, um, I was finding myself a bit, uh, bit listless and um, sort of eager to still engage with the world in some way beyond uh, the immediate domestic sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a friend of mine had uh, was working on a documentary about a particular Chinese labor camp called Masanjia, which is very notorious. So it, was a, it was a re-education through labor camp where um, sometimes petty criminals, but also um, petitioners and political and religious dissidents or minorities are sent extrajudicially to labor camps. Um, and uh, he was sort of struggling to figure out an angle. And so I, I worked with him on writing the story and ended up sort of in a co-director and co-producer role on this story about one individual who was um, who bore at least a substantial share of the responsibility for reforming the re-education through labor camp system. Is, is this letter from Masanja? Is that the letter from Masanja? Yeah, yeah. That's, so that's the name of the film, and um, it, it's available to rent on online and various streaming yeah. platforms. I watched it. It's great. I really enjoyed it. It, it was uh, it was a trip. Um, so this this fellow um, named Sun Yi, he had when he was imprisoned in the labor camp, he, he was imprisoned as a religious prisoner. He practices Falun Gong or Falun Dafa, which of course is very brutally suppressed by the Chinese Communist Party. And when he was imprisoned, he um, started at very great risk to himself, um, writing notes in Chinese and English, um, basically SOS letters and slipping them surreptitiously into the right. export the packages that they were making, which were of all things styrofoam gravestones like halloween decorations that you see on people's lawns and eventually someone found this it you know was on cnn and the new york times and it helped to precipitate i won't say they're purely aesthetic because they actually did release hundreds of thousands of people from the re-education through labor camp system they they have other systems of extrajudicial imprisonment but um, hundreds of thousands of people were released when the system was reformed, and it was partly prompted by this letter. And so we found the letter writer who had been living in hiding in Beijing following his release and um, worked with him as he traveled throughout China, recording interviews with the people he'd been imprisoned right. with, most movingly with his torturers, mm-hmm. uh, who you know regretted deeply what they had done and um, mm-hmm. and regretted that they were forced to become complicit yeah. in this evil. It has uh, a Gulag archipelago kind of feel to this story, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, very much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a great, I think it's a great story of, um, you know, the, the most moving thing to me about this story is the character of Sun Yi. This is a man of incredible courage who withstood torture that few people could ever withstand. And through it all, maintained a disposition of almost perfect equanimity and compassion yeah. toward his torturers. So for me, he was very much... Um, he was very much a kind of role model in that sense. Uh, and I made a subsequent film as well um, as a writer and right. sort of co-director. That's ask on the no, Ask No Questions, right? Ask No Questions, which yeah. is about sort of um, propaganda and scapegoating and uh, also in the context of communist China. So, um, you know, these are these are themes that were familiar to me before they um, kind of erupted in my own life in in a very different manner, sort of way. But. One of the things I, I really appreciated about these films, especially uh, Letter from Masanja, is that, you know, those of us in the West, 
we we tend to to look at uh, you know communist communist China as as a monolith, and we we perhaps over identify the real people, the billions of of them, with the CCP, and and what what is revealed in 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 your films, and especially as I said, letter from Massandra, is that um, you know the the people, the real everyday people of China, are no more. Uh, align with their government in a lot of cases than you and I are aligned with Justin Trudeau. Uh, That's right. Yeah, I hope that I'm including you in in, my, in that camp. Uh, but but so so this is I think this is really important for us to to understand is that uh, these are real people. Um, you know, they're struggling uh, under an oppressive government, and they're unfortunately they're, they're dealing with a lot of the same problems that uh, that people like you and I are dealing with right here in Canada. Uh, it's difficult to say that out loud, but it, it's very, very true. And I think uh, your, your films kind of speak to that, don't they? Because this, uh, you know, when we get to when the mob came, uh, you know, cancel culture is something that um, societies like, like China have sort of perfected, isn't it? Oh, well, absolutely. And I think there's, there's a segment of the film that um, entertains this parallel between cancel culture and the cultural revolution. And I, I, I'm very cautious when I say that because it opens me up to accusations of hyperbole. Um, <laughs> the difference in the cultural revolution, of course, is that there is also um, much more substantial physical violence and killing. Right, right. Um, whereas I think our instances of, of violence in the West tend to be lower level and much more rare uh, and not in the right. same sanctioned by the state. Um, but that reminds me of something. Uh, of, of, a, of a conversation, letters, perhaps you might know about this, between Aldous Huxley and, and George Orwell. Uh, and, and you probably know this, but other people might not know that Orwell was a student of Huxley. Huxley was older, and Huxley had, had written a book called Brave New World. And then Orwell had come along with 1984. And the distinction between the two visions, sort of dystopian visions, is that Orwell thought, he wrote his book in post-World War II, he thought that um, that this sort of, you know, the, the rise of totalitarianism, the takeover would occur through violence, probably because that that's what had just happened. We'd seen this occur in Nazi Germany and other places. But Huxley had a different vision. And it seems to me that the Huxleyan vision is more kind of what we're seeing with cancel culture, this sort of softer totalitarianism. Would you agree with that? I, I would characterize characterize our slip into totalitarianism as combining both of those elements. Um, I, th I mean, we have the um, surveillance mechanisms, the uh, sort of eraser of history, yeah. um, right? The sort of the, the attempts to control memory and truth in yeah. a very, in, in a similar way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you saw that there was a poll recently showing that an alarming number of uh, people in Generation Z would be totally comfortable with government surveillance cameras in the homes. Yes, <laughs> well, we so, have we have them. Go Google and well, precisely, yeah, we yeah. carry them in our pockets also. But um, yeah. uh, but then I think you know the the Brave New World vision is one of perfect complacency, where people are almost not aware of not the cool. nature of the regime under which they live. Yeah, because it is um, full of comforts, entertainment, um, you know, their uh, and distractions and yeah. pleasure. And yeah. these are these are another means by which people can be controlled. So I would say that ours sort of combine elements of 
um, our society is increasingly the worst of the <laughs> worst of both worlds. Yeah. yeah. So, so when the mob came, uh, let's talk about this. Um, so, um, and I'm just going to quote what's on your website. You say, you say in this, my third, and I hope last feature documentary film, I'm going to disagree with you about that. I hope you make more films. I answered, I answered some, some questions by turning the lens on my own life and experience of cancellation. You say, this is a story of media credulity, political calculation, betrayal, and obsession. It's about the failure and the triumph of friendship, the spiritual struggle to believe in things unseen, the need to make meaning out of suffering. It's also a relitigation of Plato's uh, the Georgius dialogue. I want you to talk about that because I'm a great uh, fan of uh, Plato's dialogues. And a test of Socrates' claim that to do injustice is more to be avoided than to suffer injustice. And then the reality and not the appearance of virtue is to be followed above all things. So, um, where did you get, where did you get the idea that you were going to make when the mob came? Uh, well, so I, um, you had asked earlier about sort of the aftermath of this, and I didn't really yeah. get into that. But very briefly, I found myself um, virtually unemployable. Um, so I applied to dozens of jobs, and either no one would get back to me, or in some cases, I was just told that I was a reputational liability now because um, you know if you Google my quite unique name, it was many pages of headlines effectively claiming I was a white supremacist. Yeah. Um, and so no one wanted to deal with that, even if they personally didn't believe the accusations against me. Um, so I, you know, I was, I'm the primary breadwinner for my family. And this was very challenging, not being able to find work for years. Um, I also had no platform to speak. So I was told by numerous editors that they could not publish my byline, um, again, with sometimes with many apologies, because some of these people knew me and liked me and knew I was not actually a terrible person. Um, and every attempt that journalists made to try to tell this side of the story ended up getting quashed for various reasons. So right. I had no platform and no employment. Um, but what I had was a background in documentary film. And as I alluded to in the excerpt that you just read, Part of this to me was an attempt to a make a narrative sense of an experience that at many levels felt unintelligible um, and b to, to try to transmute the experience into something good. So I think, you know, suffering is actually incredibly valuable for human beings. It's an inextricable <laughs> part of the human condition. And while we can't eradicate it, we can we can console it. Um, we can try to make it beautiful. We can try to um, allow it to purify and to temper us. And we can share it with other people in a way that may be beneficial to them. Um, and so this was sort of my attempt to do that was to to have to redeem the experience somehow um, by making something that I, I hope has um, has some positive effect. Well, it, 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 I, I know it. I know it. I know it will. I'm sure. It, I'm sure it is. If only to raise awareness uh, to people about the the effect of cancel culture on real people, because you know, and I know you realize this. It's just people see these hit pieces, and then they're on. They're on to the next thing, and they don't understand that every time there's a cancel culture attack, there's a real. Pe there's a real person. Uh, there's per sometimes a real business. So, you know, families that are destroyed. Um, and obviously you, you, you have, have come through this very well and that's to your credit, but that's not necessarily true for a lot of people. This, the cancel culture destroys lives 
And uh, so I, I think it's it's so important that this this film was made. One question I had is I know that it takes money to make documentary films. Uh, with all of this vilification that you're receiving, uh, how did you find how did you find the money or the resources to actually make the film? Because the film has a very professional, I have to say, has a very professional look to it. The, the production values on it, I think, uh, th- at least to my eyes, are very are very high. So where, where did you find the money, the support to 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 create such a, a well produced film? Um, it was. I, I think a lot of people might have a hard time believing this. It was actually funded by the Canada Media Fund. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're they're actually like they, they made one. They made one. They, more than one. Right. I was actually all of the documentaries that I've made and been involved with. Uh, the Canada wow. Media Fund has been one of the major supporters. Right. So, um, so they've actually they they do fund you know great Canadian content. There are other incentives in the market that um, sort of skew the the content that's created in a particular direction, but not all the time. And um, uh, but it was funded initially as a 20-minute project, and then we found that you know, this was not actually possible to tell as a 20-minute film, so it, yeah. it kept growing and it took a lot longer to complete due to COVID and other kinds of delays. Yeah. So um, part of the of what's in the film, for those who haven't seen it, is uh, some political intrigue uh, within with just within your own party and the NDP. You want to talk about that, that a little bit because it it has a lot of uh, has a lot of appeal and i think will will spike interest in the film you want to talk about uh, sort of some of that political uh, intrigue that that went on within within the film sure well so i i mentioned earlier that the accusations against me were based on the word of an anonymous accuser uh, and of course this person was not anonymous to me because for a full <laughs> he's a year, friend right or someone you thought was a friend at, at one point so but for a full year prior to um, my sort of successful cancellation, he had been trying to get me canceled um, uh, and sort of cycling through various types of allegations to see, I think, just to sort of see what would stick. Um, so this was a person who I'd met at a political event a couple of years prior. Um, he had then moved out to Calgary, which is where I'm originally from. He was hoping to run for office um, and found that the political world was not entirely hospitable or open to his ambitions, um, partly because of a kind of reputation he had obtained. Yeah, sort Whereas, of a Machia- Machiavellian type. He's quite a, a, a number of the people we interviewed in this film described him in those terms. Yeah. Um, and uh, Whereas I was recruited by Jason Kenney to run for the United Conservative Party, and this was something that prompted a lot of jealousy. So um, at that point, he kind of turned on me and started trying to find ways to sabotage my um, my political career and and reputation more broadly. So, uh, just a very very brief high level recap. Um, he started by claiming that I had made false accusations of sexual harassment against another political candidate when no such thing had ever taken place. Mm-hmm. So you think me you know false me too accusations are harmful to the careers of men, but if mm. men in a sort of male dominated field think that a woman is prone to making false accusations, that's very damaging to the woman's reputation and to her career as well. So that's where he started. Um, He then purchased my internet domain name. Um, He sent out, uh, he purchased Google attack ads on searches of my name. Um, He would fabricate quotations and attribute them to me and then buy Google ads to promote fabricated quotations. He took over the board of directors of my local constituency association uh, where I was running to try to control the board of directors. Um, he 
had them sign a letter that he wrote accusing me of fraud. And then he didn't sign the letter himself and he sent it to the media anonymously to invite them to report on um, claims that, you know, this board of directors was up in revolt against me for fraud. Um, and then promoted that article by with fake Google ads. Um, he sent out pseudonymous emails to all of my electors doing the same kinds of things, accusing me of fraud, making up quotes and attributing them to me. He filed a false police report claiming I assaulted him. It's just um, diabolical, really. And and the thing that finally, and, you know, would then tell journalists that I was going to be investigated and arrested for assault. Um, and none of this really stuck until he claimed that I was, you know, essentially a sort of closeted white nationalist. Right. And there's a scene in the documentary when you finally uh, confront him. There's a telephone conversation. Uh, what was that like? And, and, and how, how, was he apologetic or how, how did he answer you? So that, that was quite early. That was, uh, was sort of the last um, real conversation that I had with him was right after I discovered that he had made the first accusation because we're claiming that I had made false ac um, claims about sexual harassment. Um, and it was the, you know, the one and only time that I've recorded a phone call without the other party's knowledge, because I, I'd sort of, by this point, um, caught on to what he was doing and realized yeah. that I would, I would probably, you, you, you have to sort of use those ta tactics, don't you, to protect yourself? Well, which is unfortunate because yeah. I have a kind of cultivated guilelessness, right? I, I don't try to be cunning or anticipate attacks on myself. Um, but at this point I, it seemed like I needed to have some collect some evidence to make sure that I, you know, that he couldn't then spin a, another yarn about this. Um, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a tragic dimension here. I think this is, I think he represents a kind of cautionary tale about how you can end up destroying yourself through envy of, of others. Um, yeah. And that was what I took away from that phone call was that this is a person who almost didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, it's a, I think it's a very sad story uh, in the end. When, when I went through my own cancel culture experience and the viewers of this show will know about that, essentially what it was, Kaylin, was I was appointed by Jason Kenney to a board to select judges. And uh, I made the mistake of posting online a pledge to meritocracy. That is that I would select the best people regardless of their uh, intersectional characteristics, etc. Of course, you know, this is anathema to the left. And uh, and and you know the, the some of the, a lot of the same people who attacked you attacked me. Uh, Rachel Notley, I was her 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 favorite pinata for a while, and my name was kicked around like a football in the leg legislature. But ultimately, what happened was I got a call from the then justice minister, uh, it was Doug Schweitzer at the time, and he said, you know, Leighton, we're going to have to make a change on this board. And it was like, uh, <laughs> we're either we're going to kill you, or you're going to kill yourself. And uh, I said, you know, okay, I sort of took and took a knee for the good of the party. And I, and in the end, that's the one thing I regret about the cancel culture experience. And, and I felt, and I want to see if you identify with this. I felt a deep sense of betrayal. I felt like, you know, the party should have had my back. They should have been there for me. And in the end, I was just, I was expendable. Uh, I was, it was human Kleenex. I was chaff. And uh, did you have that feeling? I mean, did, uh, you must have felt some level of betrayal by Jason Kenney and the people who invited you into that fold 
and and promoted you as a candidate is that a, the, the, do you identify with that or did you have a different experience of that um i spent nine months door knocking and every second door in my constituency i was defending jason kenny <laughs> it's even harder to do now <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's still a great deal of very kind things I could say about him, but, sure, um, you know, sure. certainly He's a master, master politician for sure. Yeah. Um, no betrayal is one of the, I think more challenging aspects of a, this kind of trial to go through because it is of all the kinds of suffering betrayal is the one that is least intelligible to us. And I think that I, I, I'm, in thinking about how we can ease suffering, one way is that you, you have to be able to create a story about it and you have to understand, it, it helps to understand the why. Um, suffering that is incomprehensible can be very challenging. It's not impossible to deal with, but it's very challenging. And betrayal falls into that category because you'll never get an answer as to why uh, people that you thought were your friends, your allies, um, betrayed you or left you in your moment of um, most acute need. Um, so that stays with you and you never get those questions answered, right? Um, but I, I think my reaction on that front was um, that by acquiescing to the mob, you're just sending the signal that their tactics work. Right. Um, you're setting yourself up to be um, subject to the same kinds of tactics repeatedly. And um, you know, I'll say I, I, I sort of, I read a lot of, um, poetry and prison literature after this. And um, one of the fictional characters with whom I developed a kind of cautionary identification was uh, Shakespeare's Coriolanus. Oh, yes. Are you familiar with it? Are you familiar oh, with I, it? I, my first degree was an honors degree in English literature with a specialty in Shakespeare. So yes, yeah. I, know, I know the character and I, I think I know what you're going to say, but please so, go ahead. So Coriolanus was a Roman general. Uh, Rome is at war with, is it the Volskians at that yes. time? Yes. And um, he's a sort of decorated war hero. And when he comes back from battle at one point, uh, the patricians are trying to urge him to run for consul. And he somewhat reluctantly agrees, but he has to get the assent of the plebeians as well. And I'm, I'm seeing some parallels already. <laughs> There's, it's, it's funny, actually. I think there are some contemporary stagings of Coriolanus where he actually is going door knocking, which is what you do when you're running. For <laughs> so. Course. Um, but, but Coriolanus is a prideful character and he feels that this sort of begging for votes is kind of beneath him. Um, and I, I think I have a little bit of that pridefulness myself. So I identify on that level, but, um, so he's going to get the votes of the plebeians and in Shakespeare's telling of the story, they demand to see his battle scars. And this is definitely below him. These people who have never seen a war demanding to see proof of his heroism. And so he refuses. And then the tribunes of the, the plebeians arouse a mob against him and sort of turn the people against him. And um, finally, he is sort of banished from the city. And as he is being banished, and he's there sort of with his friends and allies, as well as the people who are sort of set against him. Right. And um, so they're sort of shouting out that he's, he should be banished. And that he gives this fantastic monologue uh, that I... I feel in my soul these days, he says, um, he says, he first, he says, you common cry of curs whose breath I hate as reek of the rotten fens, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air. I banish you. 
but this is the part that I connect with. He says, and I imagine him sort of turning here to his friends. He says, and here remain with your uncertainty. Let every feeble rumor shake your hearts. Your enemies with nodding of their plumes fan you into despair. Have the power still to banish your defenders, tell at length your ignorance, which finds not till it feels, making not reservation of yourselves. Still your own foes deliver you as most abated captives to some nation that won you without blows, despising for you the city, thus I turn my back. There is a world elsewhere. And so he says this idea of um, your enemies with the nodding of their plumes. So that's with the nodding of the feathers on their caps. Right. Though you can imagine the equivalent as the sort of the plumes as the button that you click when you want to compose a tweet. Right. Um, the nodding of their plumes, they fan you into despair and you banish your own defenders. And eventually you deliver yourselves as most abated captives to some nation that won you without blows. Um, so that's very much, that's kind of how I felt about the conservatives is um, conservatives just need to get so much better at not caring what these sort of astroturf mobs say, right? Uh, you know, you just need a little bit of backbone and eventually that they, they figure it out and they move on. Um, yeah. Whereas if you acquiesce, then they continue doing this. Right. Oh, Shakespeare, that this tutu solid flesh would melt. Um, so the film is available on your website, right? That's kalenfor.com. Yeah. Um, and there's a small, there's a small fee to pay. I think it's less than $10 to watch. That's it. right. This, yeah. It's well, well worth it. Uh, I think this is, this is a very important, and I'm sure it's going to be a, an award-winning uh, film. Uh, but I would be remiss if we didn't talk about something else you're doing. And that's, this is also, you'll find this on her website, help me fight back against cancel culture. There's also a lawsuit. Uh, and so she's taking this fight, you know, to the courts and in fact, um, changing the law, you've actually been successful in founding uh, what lawyers call sui generis, a new, a new cause of action, really, uh, the, the, the tort of harassment. You want to talk about this a little bit and why you're doing it? Sure. Uh, so I I ultimately decided after much kind of soul searching and prevarication that I would um, endeavor to launch a, a defamation claim against a number of the chief parties that were responsible for this. So the CBC, the Toronto Star, um, Press Progress, or the Broadbent Institute, and a number and the NDP and a number of kind of um, of agents thereof. Uh, so that's a $7 million defamation claim. We're hoping ambitiously that discovery will be done by the end of this year. It's been, I, I guess, <laughs> two and a half, three years now. Um, wow. of, uh, so it's a, it's a very long, very costly process. Yeah. But, um, but I think that one of the only ways that organizations will stop using these tactics to kind of casually destroy people's lives is if they face some consequences for it. And right you know, not the kind of consequences that they think they're inflicting on people who say the wrong thing, which is to kind of arouse a mob against them, but, you know, consequences where they actually have due process, which is something I was denied. Um, And parallel to that, I ultimately had to file a restraining order application against the individual who was behind these accusations because Mm. it didn't stop um, when my political candidacy stopped. Really? No. Oh, no. Um, he had to make sure that I could never talk about what had happened. Oh, and yes, of course. Bury the evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the harassment continued and the intimidation and blackmailing and, um, you know, you're trying to bribe people to swear false affidavits against me and on and on. So 
I filed a restraining order application um, that also, um, this person has legal training, so that was kind of a nightmare. Um, and, uh, but ultimately it went to a five-day trial. Uh, the restraining order was upheld by the trial judge and in his written decision, which is now available online, um, he actually recognized or laid the groundwork for, for a new tort of civil harassment in Alberta, right. which is not something I saw it actually, but, um, but it's interesting that this case yeah he thought was actually um, the kind of case that merits a recognition that there is um, there is a, a harassment exists in criminal law, but not in civil law. So yeah. well, those, yeah. those of us who are who are in the courts really appreciate what you've done, because uh, sadly, what's happened to you or was, is happening to you is not unique. Um, it's it's a sort of a, a, one of the tentacles of cancel culture is this this level of harassment so uh, i think it's uh, it's great that you're doing that and if if people want to assist kaylin with her fight uh you can go on her website and actually you can donate these lawsuits are very expensive folks it's a pay-to-play system and the people that she's fighting have a lot of money and a lot of power and so uh she needs your help uh so uh, i encourage people to go on there and and donate if you can, if you can afford to afford to do so, it's a very important groundbreaking legal case that is going to have significant impacts and I think important benefits for for all Canadians and for the Canadian legal system. Um, you're also doing a lot of writing, I see on your website. You're now back uh, back to publishing. Is that something that uh, that you've enjoyed being able to do again uh, to, to actually write and, 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 and publish your ideas? Um Yes. Uh, so I, though I, I don't write enough, I, I ought to do more, but um, yeah, so I, I write sometimes. Um, and I think that probably the most, one of the issues of which I'm most seized right now is in the education field still. That's obviously right. an enduring um, passion. Uh, most of my time though is now taken up with, um, I uh, founded a charter school. Yes. Now it's school network. Thank you for, thank you for reminding me. I wanted to ask you about this. Tell us about your charter <laughs> so, school. Uh, well, I, the, the experience of cancel culture drove home again, the idea that, um, if you care about the health of your polity of the political community, then you have to care about how the souls of its citizens are formed. And, uh, that starts most importantly in education. And I think that a lot of the education system right now is failing to produce the kind of people who possess the, a, the knowledge, um, but also the sort of the personal habits and the virtues right. that really befit people in a democracy or free citizens in a democracy. Um, and I'm also concerned about, as I said, trying to help people become the kind of people who are not taken in, who are not easily deceived, who are not so susceptible to flattery um, that they can be manipulated by demagoguery. Um, and people who are able to orient themselves by, uh, with reference to what is true, what is sort of good and just and beautiful, um, even as their society is increasingly thrown into confusion and, and disarray. And so, um, so that was the goal with uh, founding a classical education charter school. Um, so our philosophy, we say it sort of begins with an assertion that truth exists, that it's good, um, that it is given to us and that we can, through human reason and intuition, apprehend it at least to some degree, and that we should strive to do that. So this is kind of our starting point as a school. 
Uh, and those things, I think, sound fairly obvious, but they're actually quite radical in the context of contemporary education to say that um, right. actually truth exists as an objective thing. It's not fungible or subjective. There's no my truth and your truth. It's very, um, sad, no, that, it's very sad that that's a controversial. It's pretty issue. radical. Um, you know, we, we yeah. talk about how we, we want to preserve and transmit and build upon the wisdom of the past. This is very right. controversial. Standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Precisely. Um, so we try to ground people, we try to connect people to the, the great conversations of history. Um, and again, that's an area where the experience of cancel culture really brought home for me the value of having historical friends with whom you can enter into conversation. Because right. I found that I was very, very lonely for a long time after this. And the only people who I felt I could understand and in a strange way feel understood by, the only people who I could approach without judgment um, were the historical friends that I, that you find in literature. Yes. And, um, it's no coincidence that a vastly disproportionate share of great literature, poetry, philosophy, even histories were written by historical exiles. Right. Um, so, you know, my friends were Ovid and Boethius and Dante and Solzhenitsyn and, um, and there's great comfort in that. So being able to connect students to that so that they, they feel that they're actually part of a link in a chain that continues and is beyond them and that they're able to be understood and can understand history. So, um, yeah, a lot of very radical things that we do, <laughs> like yeah. teaching history and, and sort of world philosophy. So um, we opened our first school last August. We're opening two more this August. One of them's in Edmonton now, right? That's right. Yeah. So we'll great. have two campuses in Calgary and one in wow. Edmonton as of wow. this summer. Yeah. What a great, what a great project. Uh, so, so this has been a uh, uh, really illuminating conversation with you, Kaylin, and I'm so glad that we've had this time to learn more about you and your, uh, your cancel culture experience and, and also your films. Um, uh, that we're at the part of the show where we close off with something called the reading list. I did warn you, we were going to go here for, but for you, for someone like you, I think the tough part is actually narrowing down uh, because obviously you're very well read. Um, I, I've chosen a couple that that are probably on your bookshelf. Um, and then I'm going to let you, I'm going to go first and then let you have the last word. Um, the, the first one that I've chosen is uh, The Analects of Confucius. Um, and uh, so this is a classic book of quotations and discussions by uh, Chinese philosopher Confucius. These these uh, these things that he wrote were are really timeless, and um, they 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 uh, you know they they touch you in so many different ways on a philosophical philosophical level, emotional level, intellectual level. Uh, there's really no there's really no vista of of human experience that's not covered by Confucius in a way that uh, that, that is, is touched with wisdom uh, and 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 compassion. Uh, and so I, I strongly recommend this book. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, there's a book called The Art of War. Um, but I thought of The Art of War a lot when I was watching your documentary, uh, because, you know, some of these principles there, there, you know, are applied. And people apply the principles that are in this book, and they don't even know they're doing it. The Art of War is uh, described here as a timeless classic that has stood the test of time for over 2,500 years, written by a legendary military strategist Sun Tzu, it's the ultimate guide to winning any battle, whether it be on the battlefield or in the in the boardroom. Uh, and so uh, those are my two selections. 
uh, inspired somewhat by uh, your the path of your education, Kaylin. So, uh, do you have have some ideas, a website or books that that you could point people to, who would uh, sort of enhance their understanding of your work and and some of the things we talked about today, or or even some other book that you found has been inspirational to you? I know you've already talked about Coriolanus and other works that have that uh, that that are part of your education and that you look to for inspiration in your daily life. But are there one or two that stand out for you and that you'd want to recommend to people taking in the podcast? So I would say for anyone who is experiencing a sort of that state of thrownness and loneliness and um, is feeling kind of the injustice of the world, that Boethius is, um, his Consolations of Philosophy is will be one of your best friends. Um, the, the book, as I had mentioned, is uh, I frame it around Plato's Gorgias dialogue, which is just a beautiful, hilarious dialogue. It's best if you read it out loud, actually, but um, but it's it's both very funny and very profound. And I'll say my if I can pick just one more, um, absolutely one more that shows up in the book. I echo your Analex recommendation, so I'll add to it. Um, Virgil's Aeneid was also oh. one of the first books that I read, sort of post cancellation, and um, he's a, a character that I love and that that's more of my aspirational identify literary identification so yeah well isn't it remarkable that uh these works that were written thousands of years ago are so still so poignant and so relevant to what we're experiencing today it's it seems the you know the more things uh, change they the more that they they stay the same and the, you know the human experience really in a lot of ways despite what we hear about technology and the internet and uh, you know, artificial intelligence, really the things that we struggle with, the things that we have to overcome both within and without ourselves are really timeless, aren't they? And and when we look back at these great works, uh, it is comforting to look back and say, oh, well, wow, you know, this is, they, they were going through, you know, this. In fact, I was writing a recent piece on freedom of speech and I read uh, Milton's Areopagitica written in 1644. It's an address to parliament about censorship. So the same things that, that we're worried about today with, you know, with Bill C-11 were happening back in England in 1644. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's great that that uh, that you, you're looking back. And I this is why we have the reading list, to want people to understand, you know, these books and these poems, uh, they're so relevant and they're so great and, they, and there's so much wisdom there. Uh, and that, and that, that it really is joyful and enriching to be able to look back to them and to uh, and to experience them. So thank you for those selections. Uh, Kaylin, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you a little bit here. Wish you much success with your lawsuit and with your charter school endeavor and everything that you're doing. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for being our special guest here today on Gray Matter. Well, thank you. 